Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and for this fourth season, I'll be interviewing leaders, forward thinkers, and entrepreneurs from around the world to explore the opportunities, challenges, and rewards of working in clean tech, and more specifically within hydrogen. We'll be hearing from individuals with very different focuses within hydrogen, but with one clear goal of how we can fuel a cleaner, greener future. In addition, they'll be offering you some tokens of wisdom to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone to live their purpose every single day. So today I have not one, but two guests joining me on the episode. So let's hope this goes to plan. Today's guests are here on behalf of a company which is enjoying a period of extremely rapid growth and also some quick success from humble beginnings in a shipping container in Shepherd's Bush. They've moved out. They've built a really interesting and diverse team, a great product which promises amazing things for the industry. And they'll be telling us more about that in today's episode. My guests today are Luke Tan, the Chief Product Officer of Supercritical. He's a chemical engineer by training. He spent his whole career in hydrogen, which is actually fairly rare. He's gone from a technical to a more product and commercially focused role and has found his passion working with people around technology and founding Supercritical. Alongside one of the other co-founders, we have Matt Bird, who is the CEO. He has an extremely varied background in different sectors. He brings the business and the commercial brain to Supercritical. Uh, and today we'll dig deeper into how their different roles have formed the business. So. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. It's great to meet you. And I will hand it actually to you first, Luke, just to, to go into a bit more detail on your background and, and give a bit of an intro into who you are in and outside of work. Sure, yeah. So I guess my sort of journey towards this particular position started probably at university where I, I studied chemical engineering. And I was at a little bit of a turning point was I was leaving university, I wasn't entirely sure what I, you know, what I wanted to do, what was going to be important to me, but I sort of fell into, fell into the role that I trained to be, which was a process engineer. And I joined um, a company called Johnson Mathy. Uh, little did I know at the time, one of the world leaders when it comes to hydrogen, um, and spent the first three years of my career being a process engineer for Johnson Mathy. And then sort of directionally, I wanted to go something that was a little bit more commercial, um, a little more people focused. and. Uh, I transitioned over to their clean energy business in fuel cells. And fuel cells are devices that basically take hydrogen in through an electrochemical reaction, they'll produce electrons. So similar to a battery in the, in the sense it will produce electricity, but using hydrogen. And I grew up their business out in the Far East, so China, Korea, and Japan over five or six years before then taking the leap into electrolyzers, which is kind of the reverse of a fuel cell. Rather than taking hydrogen in, you're producing hydrogen from water. Fantastic. And Matt, your story's pretty different in that you hadn't spent any time in hydrogen. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Not only did I not spend time in hydrogen, I haven't actually spent my career in energy either. So it's quite unusual to do an entire sort of um, shift. We all sort of define success in different ways. And you know, I was running in a big corporate sort of organisation, you know, director sort of a position there, over a billion pounds worth of budget, hundreds of staff all over the world. And 
many people would define that as being successful, but it wasn't it wasn't satisfying for me. It wasn't my purpose. I wasn't living that. So it was, you know, it wasn't an overnight sort of decision. It's something, it's a feeling that builds over a period of time. And I knew that I wanted to do something that had some more, more purpose, more sort of value add, you know, something that had a bit more of a legacy behind things. So I very consciously left that world and went to where I started my career back in startups. So I sat down at an empty desk in a brand new startup, still not energy, but built that up over three years and you know, tens of millions of pounds worth of revenue. And we actually sold that business. And it was coming out of that where I'm thinking, I can do this. I can go back to doing something that I actually enjoy doing in terms of startups and being in control of something and shaping something from absolutely nothing into something real. So Having that sort of feeling, being able to do that one, I was only looking for jobs in uh, renewable energy, green green technology. That was the only thing I was looking for because I think that really sort of sparked what I wanted to be able to do with myself and going forward. Um, and that's where my path crossed with the team at Deep Science Ventures and Guile, who was the original sort of um, founder um, who came up with the original idea that the team was then formed around. Amazing. And four co-founders, it's quite a rare number. I'm one of three and sometimes three is a great number and sometimes three is a very interesting number. But how did you come up with four and how did you bring that team together? As I said, it all started with Guile. So Guile was a the founding analyst. So he was working within Deep Science Ventures at the time. So they're a venture builder. They don't invest in other people's ideas. And the founding analysts look for some of the world's biggest problems. And what Guile identified is that Hydrogen, it's its used today. You know, we kind of think of it as this new thing that could be used as part of the decarbonization story. But there's over 91 million tons of it produced every single year. But it's all coming from fossil fuels. That is, you know, heavily polluting. You know, it's, it, last year, it must be touching on a billion tons of carbon emitted into the atmosphere from the production of that hydrogen alone. So he identified that if we could have just at least switched that, if we could change that from you from fossil hydrogen to green hydrogen, we can have a significant you know, impact to the environment. And so just starting with that sort of simple hypothesis of how do we do that and how do we do it better, um, he then sort of formed on different ideas. You know, so we're already hydrogen at that sort of stage. We're already looking at the existing market of hydrogen. He then found some academic literature that suggested that If we were able to produce hydrogen in an electrolyzer, but working on supercritical fluids, so not solid, liquid or gas, but um, water's fourth state, if we could work on that, there are certain efficiencies and benefits. That was enough to get things started. And then you realize that you don't have the right people to then turn that into some kind of any kind of reality. And then that's where he found Mike Russ. So he's the fourth sort of founder of Supercritical. So Mike Russ um, has designed, built, and operated supercritical water reactors before. Completely different application, but that knowledge and experience was just so so exactly perfect for the idea and what we were trying to do. And to be able to bring him into the sort of the fold and then sort of work on this. And at the same time, that's when I was getting involved and Luke was getting involved. So we're probably going back to somewhere between sort of January and March 2020, when we kind of had this idea, and it was literally nothing more than an idea at that sort of stage. And that idea progressed to a point where we're thinking, well, if we're going to design the next generation technology, and we have this kind of an idea, what would you want it to be? And so that's where we designed our product. And we'll come back onto that, I'm sure in a moment, but we designed our product and evolved that one. As you rightly said, we started our journey with absolutely nothing. We had four people got together with very different complementary backgrounds. It's been brilliant. And this is the, one of the key things I would recommend always, never do this sort of thing on your own. 
always have people with you on that journey as you go forward and doing things. And the complementary skills and how we help each other and lift each other and work through things, especially as you remember back in 2020, it was COVID lockdown. And so we, we actually, in that first year, we only met each other in person three times. So we created a business from nothing and set this up and actually only met each other a very limited amount of periods of time. So that was our kind of our, our very starting point of nothing more than an idea and turning that idea into, into a product, into something truly unique. And our IPs and the design of that electrolyzer is able to tolerate those conditions. Um, and we, as you say, we started off building up with nothing. We took no money out of the business. It took us, it's probably seven months before we took a salary um, out of the business and building that up. We didn't have facilities until the October in that first year, but it was come the Christmas time when we had our first proof of concept that things got particularly exciting. Amazing, nice early journey. And you touched on the product there, but uh, given Luke's title, I think I'm gonna go back to him to go deeper into the product. Can you explain to us, being conscious of our listeners who already understand the workings of an electrolyzer, but also some of those that don't, what the product actually does, but also what your differentiator is, why you aren't the same as all of the other electrolyzers, and then what that use case might look like. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who maybe aren't a little bit, but aren't as familiar with um, electrolyzers, I'll start with what is an electrolyzer. So electrolysis of water literally means splitting with electricity water. <laughs> um, Electrolysis of water and devices to, to enable that have been around for the best part of 100 years. And there are incumbent technologies out there today that are trying to scale to, to reach the green hydrogen demands um, that are being posed by the market. The products are ultimately hydrogen and oxygen. You split the H2O into hydrogen and oxygen. Most technologies operate at uh, relatively benign conditions, so sort of low pressures, lowish temperatures around 80 degrees C and maybe 10 to 30 bar. And by operating in those conditions, they are able to hit certain efficiencies in the conversion of the renewable electricity to hydrogen. There are newer technologies on the market that operate at higher temperatures that allow you to deliver higher efficiencies because efficiencies are related to sort of the, the kinetics of the chemical reaction. But no one has managed to achieve what we consider to be a high pressure application. And when we say high pressure, we're really talking about pressures that are going to be a direct plug-in for existing hydrogen markets. And when you look at the existing hydrogen markets today, you've got ammonia, uh, which is used in synthetic fertilizers that helps us feed the global population today. You've got hydrogen for petrochemical or fuel facilities, which helps us remove things like sulfur and nasty compounds in our petrol and existing diesel products. And then you've got methanol. So methanol is used in the production of sort of a baseline chemical for a lot of polymers and plastics that go out to the world. As Matt said earlier, that, that's a huge market in its own right. And for too long, these industries have not been able to convert their processes to something green because it's been too costly. The real barrier that we at Supercritical are trying to overcome is how can we drive that cost down such that there is no economic excuse not to do it anymore? And we've done that by taking a different approach to electrolysis. So we actually operate our system at high pressure. And by that, I mean we pump the water that goes in to high pressure initially. Then we heat it. So you go from a high pressure liquid to a supercritical fluid, meaning it changes state. And then our electrolyzer is the only electrolyzer in the world that can operate at those conditions. And it's us exploiting those unique properties of supercritical water 
that allows us to not only hit higher electrical efficiencies, so more renewable energy goes into your hydrogen, but we've also removed a, a major energy demand step in the compression of the gas that's produced. So typical electrolyzer systems will produce low pressure hydrogen, and then there's a secondary step that is comp compression of what is the lightest gas in the world. It's hard to do, it's very complex, it has its inherent hazards because you've got a um, explosive gas that you're trying to compress. And with our system, we do all of that in the water phase, delivering a high pressure product that can go directly into all of those key markets, methanol, existing petrochemical facilities, and um, the ammonia synthesis for fertilizers production. In addition to that, it also helps us to deliver hydrogen to high pressure storage vessels. In order to transport hydrogen, you need it to be compressed to be able to get it to a density that's suitable enough to be able to be transported around the world. So you can transfer what, it, what this renewable wind or solar is being produced in say Morocco to Germany. And, and that process is going to help enable places that are currently not well connected to renewable electricity to become decarbonized through the transportation in the form of a hydrogen molecule in this case. That is a, is a great explanation. And I think one that would hopefully resonate with people who are outside of the sector, because I think one of the things that comes up in many of these discussions when we talk about hydrogen is the limiting factors. And I think in this case, you've really bridged some of those I guess I want to say with ease, but I'm sure it wasn't with ease at the start, start of this. And that probably brings us into an interesting conversation about where you're at. So obviously this, as Matt said, it started as an idea and then you were in the lab phase and now you're kind of coming out of that lab phase. Can you talk me through what that journey's looked like in brief before, but also what the trajectory you're now on looks like? Um, so... An electrolyzer is built up of building blocks called cells. Um, the easiest analogy I always go with is batteries, just because people tend to be more familiar with them. But you know, you, you increase the amount of electricity output from a, a set of batteries by putting more batteries into a, uh, a sort of system. And the same is true for an electrolyzer. The cell, the single cell that is then multiplied X number of times to produce more hydrogen is very, very important element to get right. If you can get that bit right, the rest is a lot easier to follow. It's kind of like you, you wouldn't want to build a, a bad analogy, but a bridge with like match, matchsticks. You want something strong and something you've got confidence with as a base level before you start to expand. And really the last two years has been all about getting that right. Matt alluded to the fact that we built up, built our first generation naught, as we're calling it, in December 2020. Midway through 2021, we did our generation one. And now we're doing our generation two and we've learned a lot over that journey and we've learned what not to do and what to do. Um, and really now over the next three to six months, we're building our first out of lab demonstrator, which will see a number of those cells put together, demonstrating that we're able to scale that output linearly. And that's a huge milestone for us to be able to demonstrate that this technology can scale. Over the last two years, it's been very lab focused, which is absolutely appropriate for what we're developing and it gives us that confidence as we scale knowing that we've got uh, a capable building block to work with as we go forward and the demonstrator where is that going to be who's going to see it so we're building it up in teesside um uh, teesside is 
well known for its uh, existing chemical industry. Um, it's been built up there over the last, I want to say, 100 years, but it may even be more than that. And there's a huge sink of knowledge in process engineering, chemical processing, and hydrogen, actually. You know, one of the biggest hydrogen plants in the UK is in Teesside today. Companies like BP, BOC, Equinor, they're looking at that area to determine whether or not that's the ideal place for them to scale up their UK operations. We're building our demonstrator at the, what is the Wilton Centre. Um, so that is actually an old ICI site, so the big chemical conglomerate that was um, well, a, a huge centrepiece of UK chemical history. And we're working with partners up there to build that and, and then ultimately operate it. And who will see it? Anyone who wants to, almost. You know, we're working with all the partners and investors that we, we want to take with us on that journey um, and to be able to show them what we can do and, and demonstrate that what we're building is going to be the next solution for these industries. So I just like jump in a little bit here. Just you know, I think you've said it so quickly. You make it almost sound very easy in what we've sort of the journey we've gone through and the that you know the scaling of those different generations of cells. Um, you know, for, it's it represents a lot of hard work from the team. The um, operating under the conditions that we operate under. Um, the you know the fundamental data either either doesn't exist or if it does exist, it can be quite contradictory in terms of how to do things. So we, we've had to actually do a lot of the core fundamental science in our own lab and benchmark and create our own empirical data to then do the work that we need to do and enhance and improve things. You know, we've got a real strong team that's helped us to do that, but we've also got some great partnerships as well. So working with some of the key leading either academia um, or working with some of the government-backed sort of manufacturing catapults, we've been able to enhance and make things better and better and you know, all the time. What we're building up to is that, as Luke's alluded to, that the building block of our electrolyzers that cell. Um, you know, the scaling comes from just adding lots of those cell- cells together, as, as Luke's has said, exactly like batteries. And so, getting the getting the cell right, making it as powerful and as predictable as possible. Um, and then adding them together, we can actually build bigger, you know, electrolyzers confidently because, you know, safety is an inherent sort of risk of what we're doing in energy. And we have to get this right at that very, very basic building block. And that generational change that we've been going through, each one is making not just a small incremental change, big changes and improvement is getting to where we want to get to and, and scaling an activity and the, the data. It has not been easy. Absolutely has not been easy. Um, but we've only achieved what we've done because of the strength of the team and the partners we have around us. And I think actually in your introduction, um, Matt, you talked about the purpose-led career, which goes perfectly with our strapline, live your purpose. I love it when people drop that in and I can drop it back. Um, but also the people. And I think that's something through every conversation we've had that's always been at the heart of Supercritical Yes, it's the tech. Without the tech, you have nothing. But also without the people to grow the business, it would remain in the lab. So let's talk about the team that you've built so far, but also what that growth is going to look like moving forwards. So if I, if I talk to the existing team and then Luke, if you want to, if you don't mind jumping in, sort of looking forward. So yeah, there's 15 of us today. Um, so we're recording this sort of early in 2023. Uh, there are 15 of us, but we've gone through significant growth and we'll continue to do so. So the team is made up predominantly by you know scientists in the lab. So every single person in the lab's got a PhD in a respective sort of field, plus research on, on back of that, on top of that one. I literally feel like the most stupid person in the room. When I enter that lab every single morning and it's like, good morning, doctor, good morning, doctor, good morning, doctor. It's like morning, Matt. Yeah, fine. Okay, don't rub it in. Um, but it's um, we've got some incredibly bright minds and able to do that one. We have mechanical engineers. We have process engineers. Um, so we're very much engineering heavy. 
Um, so we, you know, as a startup, we have to be very frugal in terms of where we spend our money. We spend our money not on fancy receptions or activity. It goes into the equipment. Um, it goes into the people. Um, so that's where the real sort of focus and where we're sort of putting money in there. We do genuinely believe in sort of diverse teams. Um, so we, we, we're not doing something that's easy. And therefore, you know, by very definition, you are problem solving all the time. You know, if this was easy, one is we, we, we wouldn't need to exist. Um, but also there'll be lots of different people who could do it. I actually feel that the team that we've created for the very problem that we're trying to solve is very, very unique. And I'm very, very sort of proud of the skills and the people that we have and the problems that we are able to solve on an ongoing basis. But I also believe that diversity is really, really important. You need different opinions. You need different backgrounds and experience. Diversity you know, means many, many, many things. It's not just male or female. Um, so having true diversity and trying to encourage that is, and through the recruiting process, is something that we've been, you know, passionate about. I've gone out of our way to try and do. The right person has always got the job. The best person in terms of that mix has always got the job. But what we try to do is encourage a mixture through the, f- the funnel, the recruiting funnel. Give people the opportunities. Get people in there. How we advertise, where we advertise, and bring in that sort of in there to give you maximum chance for diversity. But the final decision is best candidate gets the job. Full stop. And then looking forward, Luke, I mean, do you want to talk about maybe some of the direction we're going? Yes. Um, so I'm genuinely not entirely sure where we'll be in a year's time. Things things can change. But we're looking to to build out the team, bring in a couple of couple of more sort of senior, senior level people to help manage the wider breadth of team that we have created over the last 12 months. I think 12 months ago we were six and now we're 15. So that's quite a big jump, you know, in terms of just management and getting ensuring that everyone feels engaged and, and their purpose is being met etc so we've identified a couple of roles one is the sort of head of electrochemistry um, which we've just filled actually and another that's live right now is the head of engineering but there will be more roles that follow as we encounter gaps in ultimately in our experience basically the, the most enjoyable part of my day is working with these people um, trying to overcome these challenges that we have identified because we are the only people working in this space. You know, we genuinely are at the frontier of development of hydrogen technologies in the supercritical regime. And that is really exciting and also quite frustrating sometimes when there's just nowhere to look for support. But you know, we now have a wide enough team to be able to look sideways and, and debate with one another about which direction we can go. And frankly, who doesn't like breaking boundaries? You know, Today's climate problems have made it like an optimal an optimal environment for innovation. The funding is there. The industry support is there. The government support is there. And it's getting the bright minds to put their efforts and their energy into solving some of these problems. Get, getting them all in the right place at the right time is, is gonna, what's going to help us overcome those problems. So I'm, I'm really excited personally to, to see the growth of the team. But you know, from our perspective, it's really important that we do it carefully uh, and pick the right people for the job. We do not take hiring lightly at all. Um, the fit, that the, the, the ability to bring not only technical expertise, but a different perspective. And, and from my perspective, diversity is not just what you look like or your physical attributes, it's, it's, it's a perspective you can bring. And that comes from a huge history of you know, the life that you've led to date. All of the elements are important, but you can have a bunch of people that look completely different that are all the same in a, in a sense. And we, we, we're really careful to ensure that we are building an environment where 
we are technically capable, but also being able to look at things from a different perspective and challenge one another. Um, if we're all thinking in exactly the same way, we're, we're not going to be able to come up with the right solutions to these abstract problems that we're coming up against. Yeah, and it's always tricky. It's it's your baby and sometimes relinquishing that responsibility and handing things over to other people is hard. But actually, when you've hired the right team, it gives you that sense of comfort. And something you both touched on there is that, like the diversity of thought and challenge. And I think actually our, our companies are similar size at the moment. And it's that thing where someone has an idea and somebody else challenges it. And, and more often than not, you end up with a third answer that was better than either of the first ones. And I think that's the exciting thing when you're growing a team, that you do get someone who, you know, your next hire might come from a totally different sector to anyone else. And they say, why are you doing it like that? And all of a sudden you all look around and think, yeah, why are we doing it like that? But it is just that thing of, you know, at the moment you've got 15 people in the room, this time next year you might have double again and you get all of those new perspectives and it allows you to create a culture where challenge is encouraged and it needs to be a part of it. But I still do believe as founders, there's always that thing when you, it's really hard to give control away, um, but it sounds like you're doing it really well in hiring that layer of managers underneath you to do the, the day-to-day operational aspects of it. Yeah, I don't think it's just about the managers, though, as well. I think we sort of pride ourselves on a sort of a high degree of sort of honesty and transparency within the team. And so you know, we've tried hard to sort of maintain in our kind of how we started in that startup and we're all in it together and we're all pulling the same direction, that type of thing. And I think the second you start bringing too much hierarchy, you could lose that. And so I'm very conscious of the fact that we are one team. You know, that room of 15 people, we were all together yesterday. So once a month, we do make the effort to all be in the same room at the same time. Um, and, you know, the, the conversations and the debates you're able to have with everyone as equals is is really, really powerful. And I, that is getting harder. So 15 people now fill the room in our in our facilities. You know, say in a year's time, we, you know, we expect to be more than 30 people. So it's that level of growth and sort of activity. It's going to get harder and harder, but I want to retain that as much as possible. So we don't have hierarchy. I, I left corporate world, you know, that life and activity very much because I like the way of doing small company. Everyone's in it together. Everyone's pulling the same direction. We all wear different hats and that sort of way of doing things. That's what I've, I still encourage and that transparency is quite important to me. No, definitely. And I think sometimes that layer of management actually rather than bringing a hierarchy, it just allows you to do your actual job. I think that that's sometimes the case is, uh, when you are in a startup, you're doing your own job part of the time, but you're also doing seven other jobs. So it, it actually just takes some of that away. And I think that's it. When you're growing quickly and you need to be looking up and out, it, it gives you that breathing space to do it because that's the thing that you so rarely have is the breathing space. That's definitely true. And based off what we've been talking about there with Matt and Luke, we actually have a cameo from somebody else in the Supercritical team. So welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, Dunya. Dunya is a process engineer who's been with the team for seven months and is doing brilliantly. So yeah, hey, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So so my question for you, Dunya, is probably quite an open one. Um, but as someone that's relatively new to the team and relatively new to the working world in that you're early on in your career, what's it like working for Supercritical, a company that is people-led, purpose-driven and you know, moving at pace? I think it's a lot to say about Supercritical because, like you said, it's quite people-led and it's 
it is exactly that. So the people of the company or any company are quite important to develop a right vision and um, inspire everyone around them. And I think Luke and Matt and anyone higher up are just so supportive when it comes to leadership and just providing the right path to everyone in the company. It's quite flexible to work with. There's always someone out there to, to catch you when you fall sort of thing. Um, and it's it's something that maybe you would not find in bigger corporations where there's a lot more hierarchical structure, I would say. Um, but it's super critical because it's a small company and it's a startup. Everyone's sort of working together and everyone's encouraged to achieve the same thing. And um, that all starts with just having brilliant leadership and being inspired by the people uh, right above and seeing everyone working hard to achieve the same goal. Um, and that's something that is just amazing about Supercritical um, because I have worked at a startup before as well. And Supercritical is definitely different and just unique. Um, and, and a large part of, of why people are so driven, I think, and, and willing to put in all that hard work and feel like they're working towards the same thing is because everyone has equity in the business. So we get this kind of feeling that we're all succeeding. We all are working hard because we all want to succeed. And it's, it's, it's just a win-win from, from all angles. One other thing as well that's really good about Supercritical is the mentorship that you are offered as a young professional engineer. You come into the company and you've got other senior engineers above you who really just support you all the way and the kind of motto that the that the company has is they want you to excel and be the best at what you do so they will push you um, and support you and provide you anything and everything that you need to be the best at what you do and that is something quite unique um, and while Many companies out there say that they can, they will support you. I can tell you firsthand that Supercritical does support you in, in all ways. Amazing. Supercritical are hiring. So you heard it from the inside. It's an amazing place to work and an amazing team to join. So thanks, Daniel, for the, uh, the quick cameo there. And we wish you every success in growing within the business. Thank you. Looking into the um, the team, and we've touched on diversity and you've touched on the, the growth, but um, something that people are always interested in is the funding behind a startup. And you mentioned sort of government funding and things like, can you talk us through what those sorts of processes look like and, and why they're important to a business that's in your space? So one of the hats I certainly wear is making sure that I can smooth the road as much as possible for the rest of the team to do what needs to be done. And funding is a key part of that. So making sure that we have the funds in advance of when we're actually needing them. Um, we can always go faster with more funds by doing more in parallel and more people and teams. But there, there, sometimes there is only a certain pace that you can go. And our, our standard pace is fast, but it's, there's still a limit, limit to that one. Um, so funding, you know, I always try to make sure that we've got something in place and working through. As a team, we have been very successful with the UK government grants and applications. Um, we've won 10 of the 12 that we've applied for. Um, that's a good success rate. And I think that's a, it's a testament both to the team, but also the area of the opportunity and the differentiation of the actual technology that when it gets looked at in detail, people see that it's different. And we're actually differentiating on how we're approaching sort of a problem that other people are approaching the same challenge. 
So, you know, government grants is an important part, but the honest answer is government grants, they're not free money. I think let's get off that off the table. So people think of it as just free money that just pours into the business and it makes everything great. It is not the case. Um, we've been very sort of purists and only applying for things that are helping us on our our primary journey and that commercializing the electrolyzer. So um, we've never been distracted by applying for something over here that is money, but it actually means that we're just pulling off in a different direction. So keeping that focus is really sort of important um, for us to keep going that one. Um, government grants are not great for cash flow, being, being honest. You know, they don't cover the full sort of CapEx outlay. Um, they always pay in arrears. Um, I, I hate to say it on this sort of podcast publicly, but they're not necessarily the fastest payers. Um, so you always need to sort of plan and think about how that's going to work for you as a business. So government grants are never enough on their own. They actually got us started, um, allowed us to get moving, but then we had to very quickly move to sort of equity. So we're diluting sort of you know, the business, um, but bringing sort of the right the right people in as shareholders. I'm very proud that you know in that first year we managed to sort of close our pre-seed funding. So we only incorporated in June, and by September we'd actually closed our pre-seed of funding. We had um, Anglo American come in at that very early stage, having their help and support from that very very early stage. Remember, we had nothing at that point. We had literally the strength of the idea and a PowerPoint presentation. And to get that sort of pre-seed funding to help us get through to that demonstrator, which we achieved by that same Christmas, was just so valuable for us mentally as actually the technology and evolution of the, you know, the product itself. Um, th- that was our starting sort of position. And this time last year, sort of last January 2022, we closed our seed funding round as well. And that round was oversubscribed by about two, two times. So we're in a very fortunate position to be able to pick and choose who we wanted to be shareholders, who we wanted on the cap table. And that's really important to us as well. So having the right people behind you that are supporting you and helping you with the very problems that you have right now um, and being able to pick and choose them was great. And you know, it's often said that the, you, know, you never stop fundraising. You know, when you're a startup, you never stop on that sort of journey. And I think literally the following day after closing that round, I was speaking to potential investors again. And you're just making friends, you're telling the story, you're working out all the time. Who are the people that are going to be genuinely helpful to us? Um, it is absolutely more than just about the money. And we've got a very good set of investors and advisors around us. And we do the board meeting. We've got another one later today, actually, that we're able to then have people help us, not just the money. Now, we need the money. To be, let's be clear, that really does still count. Um, but people who can actually help us, whether it's actually you know IP, um, sort of you know understanding how we protect what we have is unique in sort of the design, how we can approach certain you know, techniques around that sort of things, introductions to other people in the industry, other investors, other other activity around that one, but also help us make the big decisions, having those and be able to table them and feel that we've got a a, a boardroom of people that can actually really help us in shape and direction is really important. So where we've got to where we are right now is a combination of those government grants, which would be very helpful and grateful for, supported by some great shareholders as well. Um, We will be looking at actually doing another equity round this year. Um, But what we're looking to do is focus right now on getting that demonstrator that Luke's alluded to up in Teesside, because that shows that we've been able to progress the technology, escaping the lab, having a product that you can go and visit. Now, we are going to invite selected potential investors to come and have a look when shareholders, et cetera. Um, and we'll be able to actually look and physically see it, not when it's running. Clearly, you can be of the size. So, you know, it's about you know being in the right location, and that's, that's something very tangible. Now, you can come to the lab. You know, selective people we do invite from that perspective. We are quite sort of um, careful about who we do invite into the lab, but 
that demonstrator is really important for us and that milestone. Um, once we have that, we'll be looking at another equity round. Amazing. And sometimes it is just nice to see something physical, to know when you've been working on something for a long time and then you actually can see it with your own eyes is, is a big step. It's amazing. We, we speak to various sort of either technology partners as well, and they, they, they're second guessing what it looks like. So they're second guessing what our electrolyzer looks like. You know, we, we're operating, you know, sort of you know, high pressure. You know, that's the kind of the unique differentiation delivering pressurized gases. So, you know, 230 bar is our operating sort of point. So we're operating. It's, that's high. That's high pressure. Useful, but it's high. And then we're operating at sort of like the intermediate temperatures running at around that 400 degree sort of you know, sort of level. And then you add in that you've got pure oxygen, you've got pure hydrogen and all the conditions and that activity. And then people are then thinking about, well, it's, it's just a big pressure vessel and, and they, they imagine it. And then when we do sort of get those sort of people and we bring them inside and we show them what it looks like, and go, oh, that's nothing like what I thought it was going to be. It's significantly smaller than I thought it was going to be. And it's completely different design than I thought it was going to be. And, it, and that's kind of like, it's, it's a nice feeling that we have that we, you know, it's not predictable and it's, it's new, it's unique and what it does in the lens. If you don't mind, I'll just elaborate just slightly on that. And that when we set out, you know, that very, very early days of designing that that, that next generation technology electrolyzer, you know, we, we kind of had a, I would say a whiteboard. We didn't have a whiteboard because we'd had no funds and money or facilities. But just imagine, just bear with me, you're in that virtual whiteboard situation that we're in. There. So, and we were, we were trying to figure out, well, if you're going to design this, what what fundamentally does it need to have to be the right product for a long-term success and addressing those markets that we've we've alluded to and you know the environmental credentials have got to be got to be true right you start there you know for us it's zero carbon not carbon neutral not low carbon but the destination we're going to is a zero carbon emitting sort of solution so that environmental starting point and that's where electrolyzers are very good but we also looked at things like forever chemicals so other electrolyzers use um, either a combination of plastics or forever chemicals in their design. Forever, you know, the, the, the PFAS chemicals, we don't really want them. You don't want to engineer a product with those in there. And so what we looked at and we said, okay, our design cannot have them. We cannot have forever chemicals in our design. And we've, we've gone further than that and said, actually, end of life. You've got to think about the end of life of a product as well. And so we actually want to be able to recycle using existing technologies for recycling our product when it is no longer useful. And we're expecting a nice long life out of it. But at the end of life, because every product has one, we want to be able to 100% recycle it. What we've ended up with is a all metal design electrolyzer that you could literally put into a melting pot at end of life and recover the base metals and reuse them. We do not use forever chemicals in any part of our design. And so we have you know, distinct advantages in what we're able to do and how we do things um, that we set out to design. And we, because of the team and people, we've been able to design something that doesn't have those problems or has those characteristics that we want to have. So what you're telling me is Luke's been a busy man. We, collectively as a team, it's it's definitely not an individual basis. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it's a team effort. And, and I think that's the great thing when you've got a team of co-founders that complement each other so well. You get that discussion and kind of positive conflict that we talked about but also so many different ideas and I think sometimes it isn't always the most technical person that comes up with the idea because it's the person that can see it from outside that's sometimes helpful. I, I often I often find myself being the, the five-year-old in the room that's always asking why and you know just challenging all the time and asking why and understanding it so my foundation's engineering so I can I can understand things I just don't have the knowledge um, but I've learned so much about electrochemistry and the, you know, the design and activity, and it's down to the strength of the team to challenge each other and understand. So 
we're all on that journey. Yes. And I did know you were all working hard. You were just you were just teeing him up so well for that. <laughs> um, and just thinking one more kind of question I've got on the growth of the team. And I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'd like to hear it is for the next 5, 10, 20, 100 hires that you make, who do you want? Who do you want to see applying to, to join the team? I think from my perspective, it's people who are purpose-driven people. As I said earlier, you can't take away from the need to have a technical capability, but the people that get things over the line are the ones that they're doing it for sort of the long-term goal and can, and can see that, you know, with all the busyness that comes from the day-to-day tasks that you can see from the, the wood from the trees and you can see the greater the greater goal that you're trying to achieve and it's not necessarily about which direction you take to get there but it's the one that is it's it's getting there you'll take left you'll take right i personally would like to see more people sort of jumping ship from you know traditional energy sectors and putting putting their their knowledge and their expertise where it matters most um we are we are not without the capabilities at all to overcome this this problem we just need more minds attacking those problems uh, in a structured way and we've been really really lucky frankly to build a team out of people who are just like that um, and who have in some instances taken a huge leap from great opportunities economic and otherwise to take part in helping us build the pro- this this product you know we are not going to be able to do it alone we need great people to help us overcome challenges that we don't yet know we have to overcome, frankly. Um, it's a journey we're going on. It's a really exciting one. And I think, you know, I'd recommend it to anyone. But yeah, identifying how you can take your specific skill set as an individual and apply that to this massive problem that the world's got, climate change. Simple. And actually, I'm going to pass to Matt there. Um, you mentioned at the end that kind of the people who might be jumping ship from other industries, but also I think we focus, there's two main camps, really. There's people that are embarking on a career and looking at where they should go. And then there's the people that are doing something else and could take that sideways step. And um, Matt, I'd like to hear the advice that you would give actually to those people who are embarking on a career. And, and I think Luke, for those that are jumping ship, just because you've both done the opposite in your own time, that um, it's nice to hear what the way that you would explain it to to someone different. Yeah, I think the um, changing sort of sectors, you know, if you want to move into sort of the renewable sort of clean tech space and activity, it's actually real hard. Changing sectors in any context is hard um, because most people, most of the time when you're recruiting, you're looking for people with some degree of experience, you know, in, in, in the field or activity. And that automatically puts you at a big disadvantage. And so in many ways, I think the front door of recruiting is, is the probably the hardest one if you're, if you're going to try and change careers in sectors. So the, you know, the advice generally on that one is find the side door. You know, go, go and find, you know, go and meet these type of people, meet sort of whether it's startups or even corporates in sort of the clean tech space. I think you've got to try and find a different way in. And so if you're completely switching across because people have got, you know, that diversity background and they have a skill set that's highly applicable and usable, um, but they just don't have on their CV energy. 
And, you know, I, I certainly, you know, when I was looking, I, I, I hit a lot of brick walls and it's just where people, well, you've not done it before. So, you know, why would we give you the opportunity? Why would we take the risk on that one as an activity? So I think the first thing just to share really is it is hard. Uh, it is hard doing that um, transition. Um, but find find the side door, find the back door, you know, if you really, really can. And if all that fails, start your own business. That's what we did. <laughs> so it's a, it's a way of doing it, and build it up, build it up from there as a uh, another opportunity. Um, in terms of new entrants in there, I think there are lots and lots of opportunities. We're recruiting both senior and sort of more sort of entry level roles, um, and that's growing and changing all the time. So for that one, we're looking for attitude as much as anything, and you know there are certain basic sort of criteria: what your background or your degree or whatever it's, it's been on. Um, but you know, we certainly recognize at that point, it's not necessarily about experience. It's all about your attitude and how you apply yourself and how you ask and what your motivations are. So I think that's what you've got to look at. So when, you know, when we're interviewing, you know, we'll, we'll often assess people, not just on their answers to the questions, but the questions that they ask, you know, what's important to them? How do they frame it? How are they asking? You can learn a lot from that side of things. So if you're, if you're applying, Think a lot in advance about the questions you want to ask based on the role and based on the opportunity. And Luke, anything to add on either side? I was thinking about this, actually, and um, I think knowing that it's not going to happen immediately exactly as you sort of see yourself in 10 years or the place that you want to be isn't necessarily a place you're going to find yourself in immediately. Um, I've certainly found that, you know, if I sort of take my own experience the sort of highly technical element of my role was not necessarily something that um, I found gave me energy. You know, like they kind of, it kind of sounds a little bit stereotypical to say something like that, but you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning, to, what makes you happy in your role. Um, and, you know, I, I've slowly transitioned across from that, taking the skill sets that I've got. And it sort of leads on from what Matt said is that take the, take the part of what you can do and apply it in a different way in a new sector. And before you know it, you'll be being asked to do additional things in that in said sector to, to help in a different way. And you're picking up new skill sets, new capabilities, new things that you can reference on your, 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 your CV ultimately. You know, if you can keep clear sight of that long-term goal and do more of what gets you out, in the, out of bed in the morning as a sort of a you know, stepwise basis, before you know it, you'll end up where you are. I'm, I count myself very lucky that now working in a company that is doing something that ultimately I can be proud of. Um, but also, you know, I don't sort of regret any of the hours or minutes that I spend doing it each day. Uh, work's not work if you're enjoying it, in that sense. And I, I find a lot of enjoyment in what I do. Um, and it all feels like it's for something. And I think that that's happened over a long period of time and it certainly didn't happen overnight. Um, so those who are in a position where, whether they're a, sort of a graduate coming out of university or a, um, you know, someone who's got 30 years experience and look, looking to transition from another industry, it might be baby steps. Um, and ultimately you'll get there. But I think if I could give myself the advice as a sort of a 21, 22 year old coming out of university, that would be it you know, accept that it's a, it's a journey you're going to go on, um, but keep clear sides of where you want to end up and take those steps. Yeah. And I think it's great advice. And actually all three of us had a corporate career and then decided to do a, a total sideways switch. 
based on experience that we had and set up our own businesses. And it's the best thing that I ever did, but I probably wouldn't have made a success of it if I'd done it 10 years ago. So sometimes it is those building blocks and it's that thing when you know it's not quite what you want, but you know you're learning a lot and taking a lot from it. And that's what allows you to either do your own startup or transition to another sector or whatever your move might be, but take that knowledge and experience with you that allows you to know what am I good at and what do I love doing? And if you can combine those things, normally you enjoy going to work, but also you're very likely to be successful. And I think that brings us to the perfect end of a conversation. So thank you very, very much, both of you, for your wisdom. Um, I wish you every success with getting more funding, going through that this year, but growing the team and, and bringing the product to life and having your demonstrator up in Teesside. And it's a bit of a trek, but I feel like I've got the, um, I've got the motivation to go and have a look. You'll have me. We'll definitely will. We'll, 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 we'll arrange a date. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Lovely. All right. Thank you both. Um, and yeah, good luck. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Clean Tech, brought to you by Brightsmith. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others to find the show. For more information on how Brightsmith can help you to build a sustainable future through identifying, attracting, and retaining diverse talent, please head over to brightsmithgroup.com. Join us next time for more Conversations in Clean Tech.